This is the 100th episode of Beyond Risk and Back. I have a lot of people I want to thank. First and foremost, Kristen Walker, the founder of Mental Health News Radio Network. She's just been such an amazing support for Beyond Risk and Back and resource for me as I got into this world of podcasting, teaching me everything I know and still has so much left to give to so many people. Kristen Walker, you are truly a boss goddess and your mission is so pure and clear out there helping as many people as you possibly can. Thank you so much. Thank you to my daughter, Maya, who's been a co-host, who helps me out with marketing, who in her own right is such an amazing uh, professional in this world. I wanna thank my son, Dylan, who is putting together episodes and building music and editing. And he's so talented. His talent is unbelievable. I ask him to do something new. If he doesn't know it, he figures it out. My kids are world changers. And it's in no little part due to my wife, Chris Porta. It, half the time she's rolling her eyes at me and the other half the time she's pushing me to do more, to push my own limits, to be better, to be deeper, not just in my work, but in our marriage, in our life. She's my constant adventure. She's my love. So for my 100th episode, I wanted to really hammer something out of the park. A few months ago, I had the opportunity to speak with a incredible guest. So I saved his show for the 100th episode of Beyond Risk and Back. And I'm gonna say his name and you're gonna be like, ah, I've heard that name, especially if you're a Gen Xer, Brandon Novak. So I know, I because when I heard it, I was like, oh, Brandon Novak, how do I know that? Brandon Novak was a professional skater. He was on Tony Hawk's skate team. He was one of the guys from Jackass. He was one of the BAM's uh, close friends. And his story of addiction and recovery is one of the most profound, brutal stories not only have I heard, but read. Because he's got autobiographies out, he's got a graphic novel. His story is one of those drug stories that reminds us, no matter how bad it gets, there's hope that got bad. So check out his story. It's brutal. The language is real and it's raw. And he's honest about what happened. But parents, no matter how bad it gets, there's hope. No matter who gives up on this kid, there's hope. And sometimes when everybody's given up, it's a stranger who will step into the space of providing hope. And that's why Brandon's story is so potent. One final note, after the interview, I went in to the facility and told the kids that I had just interviewed Brandon Novak. And half the kids said, who's Brandon Novak? And the other half knew exactly who he was. And one of the kids started bragging about how messed up Brandon Novak is. And this kid's really been struggling. And I said to the kid, Brandon gave me a cell phone number, said you could call him. Do you want to talk to him? And the kid responded with, why the fuck would Brandon Novak want to talk to me? And all the kids in the facility started telling this kid why he mattered and why someone like Brandon Novak would want to talk to him. And the kid cried. That's the power of hope. So parents, thank you. Of all the people I have to thank, Kristen, Maya, Dylan, Chris, I owe the parents of Beyond Risk and Back a huge thank you. Thank you for listening, liking, subscribing, and sharing Beyond Risk and Back. We're a huge show now because of you. 
So please keep going. Let's keep growing. Let's keep providing as much hope as we can to parents whose teens are struggling. My name is Aaron Huey. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. Brandon, um, I want to, uh, you live the life, you've lived the life that every single parent is terrified their kid is going to live. And I want to start this interview by asking you a question that your brother used to ask you. Uh, yeah. Where did you sleep last night? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the, the difference a day can make, right? Uh, where I slept last night, oh man, where I slept last night is a major difference from where I slept the night of May 24th, 2015. The day before I checked into my God willing last treatment center, number 13, that night where I slept was in an abandoned house, a shooting gallery, if you will, in Baltimore city. Uh, all that I owned was eight scarves, two jackets, three socks, one stick of deodorant, all of my belongings, my worldly belongings at the age of 35, fit into that bag that doubles a pillow, a needle, a spoon, a restraining order that my mother just served me, and four cigarette butts that I picked up off the ground. That's where I slept May 24th, 2015, the night prior to me entering my 13th inpatient facility. Where I slept last night was a, a beautiful hotel on the beach <coughs> uh, in Boca Raton, Florida. Uh, my private little balcony, I opened the door up. I have a private little balcony that literally connected to the beach. Uh, with God willing, I wake up May 25th, 2019 of this year. I will have four years of continuous sobriety. So where I woke up last night is a grave difference from where I woke up almost four years ago. At 22 years old, you you were literally like you had all the money that a 22 year old could ever dream of doing what so many kids tell their parents are going to do. They're going to be a professional snowboarder. They're going to be a professional skateboarder. They're going to be a movie star. They're going to be a, you know, you, you had it literally all. And it ends up in a duffel bag as a pillow of your entire belongings back to Boca Raton. What was the, that, that tournament coming up on four years ago, what was the, the single thing that made you go, this has to be the last time, especially after 13 tries? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, 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 I always say, because I talk to people all the time that are in and out, that are in and out. And, and, and this is just for me, but one question that drives me crazy that I hear other people ask, people that are constantly coming in and out, is like, what's different this time? I'm not a fan of that question because if I knew it was different this time, I, I clearly would have changed it. Right. What, what I did know for certain walking into that 13 facility, honestly, my friend, Aaron, I had no idea if I was coming or going, if I was just going in there to get a, a peaceful night's sleep and a warm bed with a roof over my head or a meal to put in my stomach or a shower. So I could just feel like a human being again. Um, I didn't know, but what I did know for certain is that I did not want to feel how I felt. I no longer wanted to feel how I felt. And, and what I've learned in my process of sobriety after doing a lot of internal work, right, is that the only motivating factor that dictates change in my life 
is a direct result of pain. I don't change when things are unmanageable. I change when things are unfucking bearable. My back has to be completely against the wall. And, and what happens is I walk into that 13th facility, pain being the determining factor for change. I knew I didn't want to feel how I felt. All of a sudden, I walked into my 13th facility. I don't want to feel how I felt. But hey, you people are always here. You people always welcome me with open arms. Oddly enough, you continue to be here every time I come back begging for help, which means you continue to stay sober. I can't. You can. Can you help me? Now pain has dictated a sense of willingness unlike anything I've ever experienced. You start giving me some suggestions. Go figure. All of a sudden, I don't feel how I felt. Now I'm starting to feel a little bit better than I felt. The next day I feel better than I felt the day before. And the next thing you know, it snowball effects into me coming up on four years of continuous sobriety. I always say it takes what it takes until it takes. And who am I to say what it will be when it takes? I didn't know 13 was going to be what it took for it to take. I, I didn't know. But what I did know is the pain became great enough that I became willing to change, which did follows the, by being open-minded. Did the pain start your path? here either the the pain of what was going on with your father or the pain of injuries from skateboarding like you you talk about pain being the strongest motivator did pain start your path down towards drugs and rock bottom no no it didn't because you know i, I was a, a a kid who had a pretty good upbringing right i, I had goals i had dreams i had aspirations and, and actually as a matter of fact I live with an alcoholic, my father, who died as a direct result of the disease of addiction. His body shut down from smoking crack cocaine and he died. But from a very young age, I'd say from the age of six or seven, I, I was able to witness firsthand that psychic change that takes place in an individual once they uh, digest drugs or alcohol in any form. Because my father was the nicest guy in the world. But as soon as he didn't come home for dinner, we knew that when he came home at 2.30 a.m., we had hell to pay because he was at the bar drinking, doing cocaine, so on and so forth. So I already witnessed that psychic change take place. Therefore, I hated drugs and alcohol and I couldn't stand alcoholics or addicts. I actually excelled at everything that I did because I was not going to become my father. You know, at a very young age, skateboarding did for me what drugs and alcohol did for me later, right? So if you give me that skateboard at the age of seven and you put me in a room with the prettiest models in the world, I'll not only think that they were waiting for me, I'll think that they are dying to marry me, right? And now fast forward, once I get into drugs and alcohol, they do the same thing that skateboarding once did for me. But like my story is my story. I, I used to come in and I was so worried about how people would perceive me, what you would think of me, what your opinion of me was. And right, I would come in and I would literally save my face, right? Because everything was external, how you viewed me, how you perceived me. I would save my face only to literally lose my ass on the corner of Eastern Avenue and Patterson Park for $40 to anybody that would pay just so I could get another bag. So again, the pain being the motivating factor in and out of treatment centers, pain became great enough that I became willing to, to forego saving my face. So what I did was I saved my ass. And for the first time, somewhere along the line, my ass and my face correlated. So I, I, my story is my story. I wasn't the kid that walked into class 20 minutes late thinking that everyone was waiting for him. Uh, everyone was, was staring at him. I was the kid that walked in class 20 minutes late thinking that everyone was waiting for him. I had some traumatic experiences. Yes, I suffered from low self-esteem, but but I can't 
recall or tell you what drove me in the direction of a drink or a drug. Right. But but what I can recall, what I can tell you as clear as day is the first time that my drinking and my drugging career was threatened. That much I can tell you about. I can recite it just like it happened. And that was when Tony Hawk caught me with a lot of drugs and alcohol. And he gave me an ultimatum. He called me up. He said, Brandon, we have two things we could do with you. Now, I had got my first skateboard at the age of seven. That moment I got that first skateboard, I knew I was going to be a professional skateboarder. I ate it. I breathed it. I slept it. I dreamt it. At the age of 15, I was designing my pro model. I was touring the world with Tony Hawk. I had a private tutor that went with. At the age of 14, I was the first skateboarder endorsed by Gatorade. Hanging out with Michael Jordan, uh, you know, and, and, and I had achieved all my lifelong dreams, my goals, my aspirations. And now at the age of 15, Tony Hawk catches me with drugs and he gives me an ultimatum. You go to treatment, you continue to be a professional skateboarder and you can save your life or you can quit the team. I did not have a breath of fresh air in my lungs when I said I quit. So all of a sudden, immediately, the first time that my drinking and my drugging is being threatened by an outside entity other than myself, uh, I am immediately furious and I will not have that. And then you come to, if you look at my whole career of my drinking and drugging, anything, and I mean anything between me and that next bag, bottle, or pill must and will go. And it's not personal. It's just business for the game that I play called addiction and alcoholism. You know, you had, you had talked a couple of times, you, you have in your, your interviews, in your book, about the level of, of arrogance that you possessed as you were going through your using years. And certainly, I get it. The first time I went to a speaker's meeting, on my very first time walking into the NA rooms, and they said, today's a speaker's meeting, I stood up to talk. I naturally thought that they wanted to hear from me. Sure. <laughs> And, and so what I want to know is how much of the experience, now that you're on the other side of the table, helping addicts heal, helping addicts recover, helping alcoholics stop drinking, how often do you see arrogance being a, a, a primary factor? Because you said, you said it so brilliantly. You didn't go to Alcoholics Anonymous. You went to Brandon's Anonymous. And, and Brandon's sponsor was Brandon. How often yeah. do, do you see that terminal uniqueness, that, that arrogance in an addict? So much. So much. But the beautiful thing about my story, right? Because look, here's the deal. I had no dog in this fight. I was never going to, to God willing, get sober, let alone stay sober until I had that spiritual experience, right? Because if you name it, I had tried it to beat my disease of alcoholism, my addiction. Uh, you're talking to a guy who was a 21 year straight cocaine and heroin IV user. For 24 years straight, I drank, smoked, sniffed, and ate drugs or alcohol, one form or another. You name it, I tried it to lift me of the obsession, rid me of the desire to want to get high. I'd moved to Finland, I moved to Paris, I moved to London, I moved all over the United States, I changed women, homes, jobs, careers, you name it, I changed it. And until I had that spiritual experience, nothing would rid me of the desire, lift me of that obsession, right? So now, because my story is so publicly known, it, it, there's no anonymous when it comes to me. Um, here's the deal, right? As an addict and an alcoholic, all that simply means with me, and I believe nine out of 10 alcoholics and addicts, is when we put our hand up and we say we're an addict, we're an alcoholic, all that simply means is that I'm defiant by nature, I hate authority, and I will never fucking conform unless it becomes my idea. Why? Because I possess this job that consists of knowing everything. Therefore, you tell me what I need to do, I tell you why you need to fuck off, because I believe that I know. 
right? So, so with that being said, the reason why I believe uh, I'm such an asset to what I do and, and I do so well with what I do, which is helping alcoholics and addicts find life after the use of a drink or a drug, um, is because they know my story. They've read my books. They see my documentaries. They, they've seen me high. They've seen me sober. You know, it's, it's very well televised. It's, it's all over the internet. And then I was that guy that was deemed unhelpable or unfixable. My mother bought me a plot. People had taken life insurance policies out on me. I ended up on life support for seven days. My mother had sold three homes to financially pay for me to go to two different treatment centers. And when she had nothing left to give, she simply went to God with one prayer. And that prayer consists of God, please cure him. God, please kill him. Or God, please kill me because I can't take it anymore. So when they see that guy that was deemed unhelpful and fixable. Mother prayed for his death. She bought him a plot. People taking life insurance policies out on him. He had a life support for seven days, 13 inpatient treatment centers. When that guy can get sober and stay sober, then they say, hey, there's no reason why I can't. And then they call me and they say, hey, if you can do it, there's no reason why I can't. Can you help me? So therefore, I'm simply presenting the same present in a different package in a form of attraction rather than promotion. Meaning that my defects have become my assets. And now a word from our sponsors. As a suicide and abuse survivor, Johnny Crowder spent his formative years searching for resources to help him cope with his mental health issues, ranging from OCD and bipolar disorder to schizophrenia. And after nearly a decade of clinical treatment, volunteer peer counseling, and public advocacy, he now relies on the strategies he shares through Cope Notes to live a happier, healthier life. Johnny Crowder is the founder and CEO of Cope Notes, and I met up with him to talk about what he's created. And honestly, parents, I think every teen, every person who suffers from anxiety or depression or any mental health issue should have Cope Notes on their phone. Check this out. How did you come up with Cope Notes? Where did all this come from? It's a classic entrepreneur story of someone looking for something for a decade, realizing it doesn't exist, and then fashioning one out of pure frustration. that the option wasn't available before. Yeah, so how does it work? The way I picture it is that people are getting a text a day or like what's happening? Yeah, so we'll send a user one text a day, random time, you don't know when you'll get it or what it'll say. And these texts are psychology facts or advice or a question that you can respond and journal to. And over time, we're just trying to help you mold your brain into something that works with you instead of against you. Instead of us throwing someone on our back and carrying them, we want to make sure that we're putting them in a position where they can carry themselves. Because independence is the goal, right? When something happens, you don't want to turn to something and say, fix me. You want to go, I know what to do to handle this now. So the the concept of it being cope notes, are you seeing this as a, a healthy coping mechanism? Or is this to replace the, the old bad ones? It's an answer to bad habits compounding on each other over time. So just like we can accidentally turn to the wrong thing over and over again, Cope Notes presents you with a new thing every day. So Cope Notes isn't the resource. We're connecting you with 150 other ways to think about what you're going through. So you can actually buy it for someone else and it starts showing up on their phone? So our gift subscription is one of our most popular options. And 
it you can personalize it you can say you know from mom love you or you can leave it anonymous and that person will start receiving the text messages right away what's the feedback been like johnny that's the part that's really been the most encouraging for me i think people have made massive decisions in life based on one of our texts and sometimes it's so clearly from the user's interpretation of the text it just mentions popcorn and someone checks themselves into rehab for an eating disorder is there a facebook page that people can check into your community we have a public facebook page it's just cope notes it should be pretty easy to find is this going around the world i got international listeners we're number one in australia number three in canada like are they going to be able to do this Yes. Believe it or not, even though you live in another country and it's text messages, you would think that it would be really complicated, but we have an international system set up. We're in 75 countries across the globe right now. So odds are wherever you live, we're already serving people in your country. That's Johnny Crowder, lead singer of Prison and the founder of Cope Notes. To activate your two free weeks of Cope Notes, go to beyondriskandback.copenotes.com. Dot com. That's beyondriskandback.copenotes.com. Go get your free two weeks. Okay, let's get back to the program. Question, now that you're on the other side of the table and you're, you're standing across these people who, God help us all, our stories are always so similar, no matter how different they are, that we find a little bit of ourselves in each other's, which is the biggest egoic blow to the arrogant addict. What is your biggest takeaway or the biggest learner, the thing you see consistently that kind of hammers the whole experience home for you on a daily basis? Now that you're counseling and telling the story, you know, this eternal 12 step, what do you see every single time that someone, some parent can hang on to so that they know that what their kid's going through, it's going to end one way or the other, but it's going to end. Yeah. And, you know, I always say that when I'm talking to an individual and, and you know, they're not sure if they want to accept the help that I'm trying to offer them. I say it's OK, because here's the reality. I will bet I will hear back from you in one way or another. I assure you our relationship. This phone call is not over. It will resume um, and it resumes one of two ways. This is it. God willing, you call me back and you say, you know what? You're right. I'm ready to like do this because I can't do it on my own. I'll accept the help that you're trying to offer. Or God forbid, it's your mother or father call me back saying, hey, thanks for trying to help so-and-so, but they didn't make it. So I get a lot of those phone calls. So I say to them, the issue will absolutely be addressed. I assure you, it will 100% be addressed. It's just up to you on what side of the fence you want to be on when it is addressed. But when I'm talking to these people and they're resistant and, and they're combative, um, what it allows me to be reminded of on a daily basis is, is how powerful the disease of addiction and alcoholism is and how grateful I am that, that my God saw fit to disconnect me from my vice, which was heroin, cocaine, drugs, alcohol, you know, um, and, and that's what it reminds me of. And, and, and unfortunately, everybody carries a message of what to do and what not to do. So, so it's tough because when I'm dealing with somebody that's still practicing addict or alcoholic, I'm basically generally having a conversation with three people at once. I'm having a conversation with the person that really wants to help, 
Then I'm having the conversation with the disease of addiction uh, that is doing everything to, to not accept the help. And then I'm just dealing with the delusional alcoholic mind that lies to us in our own voice that makes us believe the unbelievable. You know what I mean? So I'm trying to navigate this song and dance and, and this bob and weave type relationship. Uh, and it's a tricky one. It's a very tricky relationship. But at the end of the day, I have to remember that like no human power can get me sober or keep me sober. And I cannot do that for anybody else. All I can do is simply God willing the uh, a guiding hand along their journey towards recovery and or sobriety, if you will. Does your celebrity uh, help or do you find that when you're really in the trenches with the addict that it's, it's as meaningless as every other motivator that every parent has tried to find or provide for their kid, their spouse. Like, like when they get to see you and they're like, that's the jackass guy. That's, that's a guy who skated with Tony Hawk. That's the, does that help them? Does it, does it, does it humanize you or do they just, do they, do they use it as, as, as part of a separatist movement to say he wouldn't understand my, my story? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, it helps. It helps in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, one way that it helps is because when people go into treatment, when kids go into treatment, they'll hear people's stories such as mine. And they'll say, well, my story wasn't as bad as that guy. So, like, clearly I'm not him, which means I don't need this level of care. You right. know, we'll do anything to justify or, or deflect the issue at hand. Um, and what I always tell them is that my story was not as bad as my story in the beginning either. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, nice. And number two, what, I, what it allows me to do is like I started this, uh, this conversation out saying that alcoholics, addicts, all that means is we're defiant by nature. We hate authority. We'll never conform unless it becomes our idea. Um, so I do this in a form of attraction rather than promotion. Uh, if he can do it, I can do it. We, we're resistant. We're defiant by nature. We have that wall built up. And we want no one intruding it unless we decide to open the door and let them in, right? So parents already have that very authoritative role or figure in their child's life. It's like, Jesus Christ, here we go again, mom. Yep. <laughs> you know, but then you get this guy who appears, who's been in movies, Jackass, who's written those books, who's, who's been a pro skater, and and, and I'm not an authoritarian figure in their life, right? I'm not coming to them as, as what they perceive as a threat. I'm the guy that they see that they already kind of, they know who I am right out of the gate. And then they know my story usually. And that, that wall that they built up, which keeps them very unreceptive, all of a sudden starts to diminish. And I can get through that wall really quick. Where before the parents that have tried for years can't. Why? Because they're defiant. They hate authority. They will not conform unless it becomes their idea. So unless they choose to open that door, mom or dad generally has no chance of getting through. You know, I have the chance of getting through because I'm, I, I'm, I'm an outside entity. I'm a neutral. I'm like Switzerland here. I'm neutral, you know, and, and you know, they know my deal. So, so that works very well. And, and you know what? What I believe is, is, is lacking in, in the world of, 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 of helping is, is three simple words, and that's sympathy, em, sympathy, empathy, and compassion, right? 
So I don't talk to them. I don't talk at them. I simply talk with them. And a lot of times I don't even talk. I let them talk. I listen to them. And, and, and ultimately what I'll do is I share my story with them. And then when they're like, yeah, I can relate. I can relate. I'm saying, of course you can relate. Why? Because I'm you. I was you. I could be you again, provided one bad decision. Because the reality is I have a disease called alcoholism. Not alcohol wasn't. I can't stay sober on yesterday's sobriety. So, <laughs> so like, you know, I, I truly believe in my heart of hearts that I went through what I went through to be able to do what I do today. Because, you know, if you can do this thing in a form of attraction rather than promotion, all of a sudden it becomes their idea. Guess what? They fucking excel at a rapid pace. Why? Because they chose to come up with it. It wasn't yeah. you, mom, saying, get to rehab. You put me in front of them, I'm this like guy who's been in these movies they perceive as a pretty cool, hip individual. You know, it's not a mom, it's not a dad, it's not an authoritarian figure. Uh, and, and they're like, if he can do it, I can do it. You know, attraction rather than promotion. It now becomes their idea, and guess what? They excel at a rapid pace. We meet them where they're at, not where I believe they're headed or where I think they should be. Is there, aside from Brandon, and aside from yeah. Brandon's God, is there anyone in particular through the years of recovery and treatment that stands out as, as someone who provided that light, uh, that shining, hey, that light at the end of the tunnel is not a train, or just that one piece, that advice that to this day you try to emulate their energy, their words, or just their, their level of support that you received to them? Is there, is there a, a shout out to someone who sponsored your survival? Yeah. You know, at the time when it was happening, it, the furthest thing from my mind was recognizing that, that this was so instrumental in my sobriety. I had no idea. I could not see it when it was in front of my face. But the beautiful thing about, about remaining sober throughout some years and having that spiritual experience is when you can look back and recognize the synchronicity in life's events that lead us to the here and now. We can see exactly who played a pivotal, a pivotal point or role in my life to, to changing for the better. And, and looking back, clearly my mother, uh, because that same mother that, that bought the plot, the same mother that, that took life insurance policies out on me, that prayed to God for my death, uh, now is called me up when I had nine months sober and she said, I hate when you come to visit. I said, why? She said, because I get so sad when you leave, you know, oh. that very same mother, I, 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 I took on a cruise to the Bahamas. That very same mother loves Rod Stewart more than God himself. I, I flew her first class on a flight to Florida and bought her front row tickets to see Rod Stewart play and then pulled some strings to get her backstage. That, that very same woman I'm actually right now, as we speak, currently assisting in, in her transition from her home to an assisted living home, right? Like the, the people that, that love me when I didn't love myself, love me when I didn't love myself. They cared for me when I didn't care for myself. They, they prayed for me when I didn't pray for myself. They showed up for me when I didn't show up for myself, such as my mother, such as my sister, such as my brother, such as my, my sponsor, Lex my sponsor, Anthony, uh, my, my dear friend, Chris Herring, um, you know, these people, they taught me how to be, uh, how to be, you know, a son to my mother, a brother to my brother, a brother to my sister, uh, a, a complete, 
you know, uh, productive member of society, a tax-paying member of society. Joe Tuttle, the owner of Banyan Treatment Center. You know, there's there's so many people along the way. But what those people, all those people did that I just said, what they did was was they didn't talk to me or at me, but they talked with me. They treated me with empathy, sympathy, and compassion. They always met me where I was at, never where they expected me to be. You know, and, and the first time I ended up in the emergency room, but the last time, God willing, I ended up in the emergency room and the, the ER nurse, she came over to me. She didn't say, what's your discharge plan? How much are you using? Uh, what exactly are you using? You know, uh, she walked up to me and she said, sweetheart, how are you doing? And it had been so long since someone asked me how I was doing, you know, because for years I had been living on that animalistic level. The abnormal had become the normal. Uh, so disassociated, disconnected from any form of reality that people tended to cross the street when I walked down. So for someone to actually walk up to me and say, sweetheart, how are you doing? I couldn't put into words how valuable that was to me. Last question, Brandon. Like, like all these years, everything that you did, everything that you've, you've, you've done, everything from the streets to when you're on the skateboard taking those spills to, to the... Just the crazy shit you guys did on Jackass. My my, the question that that just has burned since the first the first email I got that said, "Hey, Brandon's up for interviews." You guys, Brandon Novak wants to spread the message. He's on the Eternal Twelfth Step. I yeah. my first when I saw that is the question that I got to ask you now. How come you're not dead? Uh, you know, a lot of people ask me that. A lot of people ask me that. And, you know, I go to meetings a lot and I hear people in meetings, you know, those 12 step meetings I go to and they say, you know, I worked really hard for this seat. And my first thought is, no, you fucking didn't. You didn't work hard for that seat. You know who worked hard for that seat? Your mother, your father, your employers. Wow. They worked hard for that seat. If justice was due, I'd be dead years ago. You know, I really firmly believe that it was only due to my higher powers vision that, that I did not die, that I, that, that, that I was brought from the gates of insanity, the floors of hell to, to now, again, use my defects as assets. Check this out. Drugs and alcohol were my answer to everything for 24 years. They were my answer to everything. And then my answer to everything became my problem to everything. And now, ironically enough, my answer to everything, which turned into my problem to everything, has now become my answer to everything again. Because people say they cannot see past that bag, that bottle, that needle, the, the, that pill. They can't see past that. But all of a sudden, they see this guy that was surely to die years ago. And, and not only did he not die, he's got like four years sober. They say, if that guy can do it, there's no reason why I can't. Can you help me? Just like I did in my 13th treatment center. I walked in. I said, I can't do it. But clearly you can because you're sober. Every time I come here and I beg for help, can you help me? You know, a form of attraction rather than promotion. My defects have turned into my biggest assets. All because, like, my God saw fit for me not to die, I guess. <laughs> Man. Brandon, thank you so much. I, I I know I know your time's really limited. I know you got a lot of work to do. I know you're at a facility right now there to help people. So I don't want to take too much more of your time, but that meant a lot. And I know a lot of parents, the Gen X are parents, man. That's my audience. 
we all know you. We all remember you. We we watched it. We watched you, and we watched our kids watch you. And can't always say you were you were the best role model for my son, but I can say you are now. So thank you. Man, I can't thank you enough for uh, allowing me to, uh, you know, to to come on to your your program and allow me to to deliver a message of, of promise, hope, and freedom from active alcoholism. You know, Thanks. so thank you for for giving me that platform. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to leave for you a phone number where people can reach me uh, in case they would like help. Yes, please do. Okay. The, the number they can reach me on, and this is directly to my cell, is 610-546-2608. Say it one more time. 610-546-2608. Direct line to yours truly, and uh, we'll see if we can figure out a way to get you up and out of your current position. Brandon, thank you. That was incredible.